You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Portland, Des Moines, Tacoma, Santa Fe, Charlottesville. He's begun to write his memoir now, whenever he's not tending to Rutherford. He thinks how odd it is that Rutherford forgot how to speak English while living in Italy. For Mr. Schmitz, the muteness of his isolation has caused the language to surge out of him. The stories he tells Rutherford grow longer and longer and reflect more of his own experience and his thoughts. He begins to take notes on what he says and incorporates them into his writing. In the silence of their forsaken hamlet, the rhythms and patterns of language swirl around the two men, reverberating off the walls of the house and in Mr. Schmitz's head. At night, when he lies down in the upstairs bedroom, the words rise into a chorus, growing in volume and radiance, drowning out the waking world and carrying him softly to sleep. Baton Rouge, Norfolk, Augusta, Reno, and Tuscaloosa. The long summer is coming to an end, the nights are cooling, and he's just about run out of cities. He paces about the house, talking to himself and rubbing his chin, and he feels as if he's walking along the precipice of the Carso's tall cliffs, bracing against the sea wind that wants to pull him over. One evening, his nerves carry him to the red and yellow checkerboard piazza at the end of town. The high fog shifts the outlines of the rocks and trees until it's impossible to see beginnings and endings here's and theirs. He stands in the shadow of the monastery and feels the cragged mass of the mountains loom behind him with a menacing force. When he turns to look at them, he thinks he can see, over the ridge in the distance, another isolated town, a smudged yellow square at the edge of a broad green valley. There must be plenty of sleepy towns like this in the Carso, each suffering its own battle against the monotonies and mirages of loneliness. Towns, like people, can dream, and this one down in the valley, cut off from the world by mountains on all sides, looks as though it has been in a trance for many years. He thinks of Rutherford, lost in his own reveries. What cities must he be exploring now? What dream people populate them? Carlita, the dream girl herself? It occurs to Mr. Schmitz that he knows what he'd say to Rutherford should his friend wake up again, but he hasn't considered what Rutherford might want to tell him. Focusing on the town deep in the distance of the valley, he tries to listen for his friend's voice. Finally it comes, hoarse but firm in his inner ear. And then Mr. Schmitz's eyes go blank, and a pain shakes his ribs because he realizes what he has to do. Nathaniel Rich is the editor of the Paris Review and the author of San Francisco Noir. His first novel is The Mayor's Tongue. Thank you for joining me, Nathaniel. Thanks a lot for having me. Nathaniel, it's really not a surprise that you would end up writing a novel. You grew up in a rather literary household, didn't you? Well, uh, both my parents uh, were involved with writing in one way or another. Uh, My mother worked in publishing as an editor, and my father is a newspaper columnist. And they both were passionate about books and films and literature, so I suppose I grew up encouraged to pursue those things, which I feel fortunate about. I think a lot of uh, other writers, when they tell their parents what they they want to do for a living, are often greeted with sort of looks of consternation or, or anger. So I got a little bit of that, but they couldn't really take it too far because they, they had set the bad example to begin with. As you were growing up, you know, uh, households with two artists in them. That's not really a high-income occupation. Did you guys have, were you like 
were your parents struggling writers <laughs> or eating well, a lot of beans or were they doing well when you from your get-go? I did eat a lot of beans, but that was a personal choice. Uh, it wasn't thrust upon me. Um, but, uh, well, like, it's true. They're not high-paying jobs, and uh, they were lucky um, to find an apartment in a kind of out-of-the-way neighborhood in Midtown. Well, it was out-of-the-way at the time, and so it was not an impoverished uh, situation, but I did go to to school with many people who, when I told them where I lived, were, you know, confused and thought that it, it was referred to my my neighborhood as downtown because they all lived on you know, the Upper East Side or the Upper West Side. But it was uh, they, they weren't neither. Both of them had had salary jobs, so neither neither one was a, a writer just um, living from book to book, which is. That's the real scary thing, or freelancing. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about your your home life as a child? Tell me a little bit about the move. Did movies play a big part in your role? World? Yeah, mo- movies were a really important thing for me from a very early age, and I remember watching uh, with my father watching um, Hitchcock movies and James Bond movies, and it was a kind of ritual we had, and, and my brother also. And going to you know great uh, old theaters in in New York when a lot a lot of them still existed and and seeing films from the 30s and 40s and and screwball comedies and and uh, film noir and things like that and so I uh, it was it was uh, most most of my memories of weekends growing up were watching movies. When you were a, a child, did you start? Were you interested in writing even then? I mean, surrounded by it, might it couldn't have been difficult. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I think I I, I, I experimented with different things. Um, I I always did the school paper, and I always I was writing stories a little bit. I I, I really didn't. I when I was growing up, I was really mostly concerned with the performance of the New York Mets, and I don't really remember any kind of burning desire to write at a very early age. Though it's it's one thing that I. I did, among others, but yeah. As I as I grew up, I mean, I think I was I was probably surrounded by a lot of books and 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 movies and theater also. But my main memories are of watching Mets games and going to bed and crying after they lost. Yeah. It strikes me that many kids who are you know, there's a natural inclination to rebel against your parents. And you know, for people, parent people whose parents are kind of working class, or you know, my dad was in insurance. For me, uh, reading and science fiction was a real rebellion. And, and I'm wondering if you, immersed in literature, found yourself in a position where you were maybe tending to rebel against it. Well, I was a pretty, I guess I was pretty much of a mama's boy. I didn't, I never had a really angry rebellious period. I mean, I, I had acts of rebellion here, here and there. But also, it, you know, what my parent, my, my, my mother edited uh, mostly nonfiction books, and my father wrote uh, criticism and then political commentary. So the worlds of, of literature and fiction and films, uh, although they were things that my parents were passionate about, I didn't feel like once I started, you know, writing about films or writing fiction, I I, I felt like it was a very distinct world. Um, I mean, I, I could see, uh, you know, I understand the perspective of s- someone saying, "Oh, well, your parents are both sort of work with writing, and you work with writing." But in in my mind, it seemed um, like a different 
very different type of writing that that I was that I've been doing now. You went to Yale, and, and that's a, a, a that's a highfalutin education, isn't it? <laughs> um, I guess so. I don't know if I would describe. I mean, at Yale, it was a great place to learn how to to binge drink and um, do all kinds, invent strange machines for drinking alcohol. Um, which I, I guess I don't I don't need to go into that now. But uh, no, Yale was a fun place. It was um, I suppose it has a highfalutin uh, you know quality to it. But my friends were mostly people who my friends there were mostly people who were doing comedy on campus. Some people who were writing, people who were doing music. It was a lot a lot of creative energy, and um, I I enjoyed that a lot. I I didn't it, you know. It was, serious academic work but the thing about college is it's it's actually for me it was actually a lot of fun and a lot of uh besides the work there was also a lot of non-work determined non-work did your parents have any expectations of what you do with your college education and how how you would proceed they probably had fears more than expectations um I don't. I, I I really didn't know what I was going to do, and they they didn't know, and and I feel fortunate that they were uh, supportive in, in that. They there was no pressure to go to law school or uh, to to be a doctor. Um, and for for a little while, I thought I wanted to work in a, for a general manager in baseball. Uh, then for another, when I graduated, I really didn't know what I was going to do, and I I ended up applying to a bunch of things and, and got a job, a, a really good job at the New York Review of Books as an intern, which, but that that prospect was very exciting to me. And if it wasn't for that, I, I don't know, uh, you know, where I, what I would have done necessarily. But it, it wasn't, you know, the writing was important to me, but I didn't know exactly how that was going to, to play into my professional career, because as, as people know, writing is very rarely uh, a professional career. But you managed to, to do this a, as a critic and as a film critic. Now, it's an interesting idea, just even as a concept, to be a, a person who writes about film. It's the, the old dancing about architecture. Uh-huh. It is a strange. I think it's easier to write about film than it is to write about music, which is how I really got started in high school and then in college was writing reviews of, of bands that I liked and concert reviews and and well I, who did you like I have to ask who did I like uh well my very first piece in high school for the newspaper was a a concert review of Sonic Youth that was very exciting to me uh, in in high school I guess I listened to a lot of well my tastes haven't changed very dramatically <laughs> embarrassingly since then but uh band you know, rock bands like Sonic Youth Yola Tango um Modest Mouse, Blonde Redhead, a uh, b- bunch of bands that were big when I was in high school, and 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 I continued to write about those types of bands, Radiohead, and so on, um, through college. But I, I I began to grow really frustrated with the cliches of music writing, and, and found it extremely difficult to break out of them. And writing about sound is is very tricky, and it's very tricky to do without falling into the basic, um, you know, really sloppy metaphors about what what some rock band sounds like so i find compared to that i found writing about film easier and writing about books even easier because you're writing about the same medium that you're taking it in as you started to write about film 
You, you ended up writing a book called San Francisco Noir. How did you end up writing this book? Um, well, I was I was fast. I, I loved film noir since I went from an early age, and it always struck me how their film noir tended to be shot and set in three different cities: New York, which makes sense because it's the iconic American city, and and the you know, the American city is very much the subject of film noir. L.A., which made sense because it's also iconic, but it's also where Hollywood is. But then San Francisco, and I, I never understood why there were so many of these films shot and set in San Francisco, and what, what was it about the city and its mystique that, that attracted filmmakers to come, come here and make, make all kinds of great movies from um, Maltese Falcon, Sudden Fear. Um, well, there are 40, 40 films in my book. And uh, I, that, was, that was the seed of the project for me. And, and the other, other part of it was... I just really wanted to leave New York for the first time in my life, really, and and move to San Francisco. And I completely fell in love with the city, even from a trip before I, I, I actually moved here. So it was a way for me not only to uh, write about films that I loved and, and try to learn something about them, but a really great way for me to immerse myself in a city and learn more about And I ended up feeling like I was more of an expert on San Francisco than I was ever of New York. There's an interesting passage in your book that that we'll get back to where you talk about how we sometimes know more about celebrities' lives than our own families. That's uh, <laughs> probably true, yeah. There's also a lot of, of uh, sneaky things about San Francisco that I I inserted into the book at different places. Uh, but, well, let's talk a little bit more about San Francisco Noir because you have some interesting points, and this may be known well known to the noir aficionados, but you divide noir into two periods, from 41 to 58, and then from 58 to the present. Tell us what those periods are, why you made that choice. Is that the default choice for the noir? Well, it's, I, I wasn't the one who came up with it. I mean, it, it's, it's fairly common. A lot of people would call f- the film noir era for the first period, 41 to 58, That's and I we call it the classic noir era. And the, those are the films that establish the genre, that establish the very specific stylistic aesthetic that these films all share, sort of sense of impending doom, uh, a character who's down on his luck and makes a bad decision and ends up being drawn into something bigger than, than him, and, and you know, always ending with tragedy, murder, and, uh, and doom. And all of things, which very much appealed to me, and uh, and then the neo noir period is basically just the term used to refer to films after fifty eight, which basically in the late fifties the people, the filmmakers and audiences especially started getting really tired of the conventions of noir, and the the there was less interest in and and they were further from the war, which in many ways was the real um, inspiration for a lot of these films. And there was a, a kind of quiet period for a few years, and then films started to appear by filmmakers who had come of age watching film noir and, and made films that were, in many ways, tried to um, take certain elements of noir and heighten them and, and transform them into a film that was contemporary for the 60s or 70s or beyond. And film like The French Connection or Chinatown um, would be good examples. Point Blank is one of my favorites. And these were films that were shot in color instead of black and white usually, but and often often took one element of noir and and kind of magnified it to the point of, uh, sometimes to the point of obsession or, or, or insanity. 
And so they're usually very similar to noir in one way, but not don't share every stylistic quality or, or thematic quality because then they would they would be like a film made in 1950. I find it really interesting that you chose uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the, the Philip Kaufman version, as one of your films. Oh, absolutely. Well, I, I actually had the opportunity to, to, to speak with Philip Kaufman, who's you know in San Francisco, and he, well, it's a, it's a remake of the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and he, I think he saw it very much as, as, as a noir and really a, a kind of um, tribute to, to a lot of the films in that genre. And for me, that film is in some ways a per, you know, perfect example of neo-noir because he, you know, the, both on the level of cinematography where uh, in, the, in a lot of the old films, sort of a very stark use of shadow and chiaroscuro was used to create a sense of uh, you know, paranoia and anxieties, you know, shadows and, and staircases and so on. And he he achieves a similar effect, but it's shot in color. And the way he does it is he uses, vi- there are very weird colors throughout the movie. There's sort of strange purples and greens and like alien greens. And, and you kind of have the same kind of anxious, queasy sense watching that movie. But he's, he's come, he's, he's created that sense through a totally different means. And then the whole idea of the Sutherland character being fearing that everyone's out to get him and 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 becoming paranoid is uh, very much in the tradition of the classic noir character who who feels like he he falls into some kind of larger conspiracy against him and that that idea of a conspiracy uh, is something that has always fascinated me and I think is also a big part of the novel in some ways. So as you're out here studying films, um, were you writing any fiction in or even thinking about fiction at that point? Yeah, I I sure was. It was, I mean, I moved out here in 2004, in January 2004, and wrote the noir book that year, basically, or or, yeah, in the year of 2004. And while I was writing that, I I was doing that during the mornings and in the afternoons and evenings very secretly and without telling anybody I was writing the novel and it they were kind of you know the two projects in my mind weren't very closely related although I mean now if I in retrospect I could see certain parallels maybe but um, I I felt like I was doing my sort of the critical work was was sort of like my schoolwork during the day even though I I loved I loved the project and at night it was more uh, the untethered fiction writing which um, I felt like allowed allowed me to go into a different place and and so much of the book was actually written in San Francisco and I really got the first first real head of steam was in San Francisco I I'd worked on the novel uh, or what became the novel for the you know two or three years before that but in in not in nearly as concerted a way well when you started writing this novel in those two or three years beforehand what made you decide to write a novel and what made you, I mean, as opposed to writing short fiction, say? Right. Well, uh, I I really didn't know what I was doing actually, and 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 I, I began. I had an idea. I had a, a number of ideas, uh, general ideas, sort of themes, and originally, and then I, I I started to think about characters, and that that came next, and and this took a long time for me, and the 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 story came really much later, and. So I really didn't know what I was writing. I, I, I think I was I was really, in some ways, teaching myself to write a novel by trying to do it. But I, I didn't know that it would necessarily take the form of the novel. Um, at one point, I took 
a year off from that writing right before the year before I moved to San Francisco and just tried to write short fiction and discovered that I was not very good at it or, or that it, it, well I, I wrote some things that I'm, I'm proud of but basically what I was doing that year was trying to in retrospect I think I was trying to get uh understand what my writing style could be or what what I felt what kind of register I felt most comfortable writing in with fiction so I wrote over that year uh when I was trying to write short stories there was a number of very different types of stories and almost different genres of stories and at the end of that year I I went back and and looked and thought saw which ones I thought were the most successful and I realized that those were the ones that I should that in that voice I should write the novel but I, I feel much better suited as a writer to the novel than to short fiction. I have great admiration for people who are excellent short story writers, but I don't know that I have the abilities necessarily. Or maybe it's it's as a writer, it's less interesting to me than writing a novel. Well, tell me, what kind of fiction did you read, say, when you were growing up, and what did you enjoy in college? Did those tastes change? Or yeah, I went through I went through several distinct periods from the age of nine to fourteen or fifteen. I read exclusively Stephen King books. I remember coming on uh, my fourth grade after after summer vacation in fourth grade, the teachers asking us to write the names of the books we'd read over the summer. And uh, I still remember the expression on Miss Sobel's face when she looked at my page and said of Little House on the Prairie or Hardy Boys or said The Dead Zone and Tommy Knockers. <laughs> she was appalled. Um, and uh, so I read, I read probably 25 Stephen King books in that period. Then when I was in high school, I, I really... Um, Really started to love the uh, Martin Amis, British writers of his generation, uh, Salman Rushdie, Ian McEwan's early story, early books, Julian Barnes is another person, and uh, I read those those writers obsessively for a while. And then in college, I studied uh, literature. I was a literature major, and so I read a lot of European fiction, Russian fiction, early twentieth century fiction. What did you read for pleasure after you got out of college, or did you? Uh, yes, I, I, hopefully I'm always reading. I mean, I, I always hope to find pleasure in, in reading. Uh, I, I read a lot. I continued to read basically the, the, the books that I was reading in, in college or, you know, similar types of books and not, not very much contemporary fiction, um, much more, uh, more fiction by, Writers that I I was passionate about in college, like uh, Flann O'Brien is one person, or um, Itzhak Sveva, who I did my thesis on, or uh, you know Dostoevsky. Dick, I read a lot of Dickens. Um, very passionate about Dickens, and and so on. So I it wasn't really until I started working at the Paris Review that I I've, I I boned up on contemporary fiction in a very serious, concerted way. Well, how did you get a gig at the Paris Review? That's presumably not too easy. Uh, well, I, no, I was uh, very fortunate. I, I worked at the New York Review of Books as an intern and then an assistant for a year and a half. And I left that there to move to San Francisco to write the noir book. And that was another year and a half. And at the end of that period, as I was becoming very close to running out of money entirely and had and trying to figure out what you know what would be the next job for me, a friend called me and, and mentioned that Philip Gravich had taken over as editor of the Paris Review, which I knew, but then he mentioned that he was looking to hire editors and that maybe I should apply. It would never have occurred to me that I would have been qualified or that uh, you know I would have been chosen. But I was out in San Francisco and I had a lot of time on my hands, so I wrote a letter to Philip and 
he we got in touch and and there was a sort of a long process of correspondence and and discussions and for a while I, it didn't seem like I would be able to move to New York in time to even start the position but finally he asked me to come to New York for an interview and I flew in and and on a red eye and 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 he offered me the job at the end of the interview and so I, I felt you know it's been very exciting because it he I was the first person he hired after taking over as the as the editor of the Paris Review and I think he wanted someone who he liked who was young and uh passionate about fiction and and would be excited to be part of, of a magazine that, although it has extremely storied, uh, wonderful tradition, at the same time when Philip took over, it felt very much like a startup as well because the whole staff was new. We moved offices from George Plimpton's house, his basement on the Upper East Side, to a, a loft in Tribeca, and there was very much a, a sense of, of a new enterprise. So, uh, which was really exciting to me at the time, and and I think he wanted probably a, a younger person to be, to help him and be part of that. As you're working at the Paris Review, you were, were you working on this novel? Yeah, I was. I was. I was very well into. Uh, at that point, I was. Um, the noir book was was out, and I was just working on the novel and doing freelance pieces, and I was probably two thirds or three quarters of the way through writing it, at that point when I moved back, which was June of 05, I think. Now, as I understand it, you told nobody that you were writing this novel. There's a kind of a, writers are a superstitious lot, I think. And I was wondering, was there an element of superstition in uh, that? Mostly probably fear and insecurity and some some superstition. Uh, you know, like I said, I really didn't know what it was for a while. And I didn't know if it was going to work, if it was going to come together. And, and, and because I, and I, so I didn't want to talk about it to anybody. And I didn't want to be um, you know, the guy who goes around town talking about his book and then it never comes out and it's or it's a disaster or one you know, one thing or another. So it it took me a while to feel comfortable even thinking that it was novel and then showing it to people. And uh I, I guess you know, basic basic insecurities and fears of it being terrible and totally crazy. That was another thing. I thought maybe because I wasn't talking about it that it was just getting crazier. The book itself was getting crazier and crazier and crazier and going into some strange part of my mind because it wasn't being exposed to an outside reader who might uh, inject some kind of logicality to it. Uh, so, And it turned out it was crazy, and I, I spent a long time sort of t- reducing the craziness factor to a more manageable uh, manageable amount. Um, but it, I, I did, over a year or two years, I, I did a lot of editing work to, to really make, get uh, into a cohesive, structured uh, novel. So you were doing this while you were an editor at uh, Paris Review. Uh, there must have been some feedback between the two, I'm guessing. Yeah, I think, well, it, I, really, I mean, working at the Paris Review, I, I felt, I definitely feel like I, I improved as an editor and it helped edit my own fiction. And, you know, it's just been very humbling and inspiring to be able, as an editor, to work with such Great writers as we're able to as I'm able to do in this in this job and both both new young writers that are are coming up who are you know my age or younger or just a, a little older and to work with them on stories and then to work with you know more legend legendary figures uh, who we interview for the magazine so someone like a Stephen King who was able to interview for the magazine or uh, Ishiguro or Kenzaburo Oi or Orhan Pamuk people like that. Um, just to see how they go about their work and how they talk about their work and and 
see how they conduct themselves was, has been extremely uh, helpful and, and educational for me as a, as a young writer. As an interviewer, I'm guessing, and a writer interviewing, interviewing writers, uh, it, it's kind of like getting a one-on-one class, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, that's and that's the idea of the the Paris Review interviews from the, from the beginning was to, well, the real idea was to get famous writers to contribute pieces to the magazine and not pay them. And when <laughs> from very early, you know, from the first issue, they they had the fantastic idea that well, you know, we might not get Ian Forster to write us a short story, but Maybe he'll sit down and, and agree to be interviewed by us, and and then we, you know the, through the editing process they really the writer really revises and edits it a lot. So by the end we have a real kind of declaration or or, or authoritative statement by the writer about their own work. And and one of the things that makes them so fascinating, I think, especially to writers or aspiring writers, is the discussion of the real nitty gritty of writing, the craft. And you know in every Paris Review interview we ask, when do you write? Where do you write? You know, how much do you write every day? What's your, you know, what kind of pencils do you use? That that level of thing, which maybe sounds tedious to someone who's not a writer, but but to a young writer who's just you know beginning and wants to know how it's done, it's it's really demystifying and and sort of deglamorizing in an extremely helpful way and use, useful way. The process questions we call them in the yeah the process <laughs> yeah no that's 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 those are the money questions the process questions. Well, um, tell us a little bit about your process. Well, it it uh, so far it's it's changed uh, based on on what what kind of jobs I've had. But when I've been working at when I was working at the New York Review and and now I I do most of my writing at night and on the weekends, especially on the weekends. When I lived in San Francisco, although I felt I was wasting my time or I, I was taking I was too distracted just enjoying the city and and, and hanging out. In retrospect, it's by far. Uh, the most productive period of my life because I wrote almost two books at the time. And and basically what I would do then was just wake up 9 or 10 in the morning, write, try to write 300 words on the noir book, make lunch and write, and then try to write 1,000 words on the novel over the course of the day. Now, do you write on a computer or do you write by hand? I write on a computer and then I print things out and, and edit by hand and, and edit obsessively. When you're editing yourself, is with the novel you didn't have any. You had no first readers. I was I was the first through twelfth reader. <laughs> Maybe someone else got involved around fifteenth read or something. Well, let let's talk a little bit about your novel. It's really a fascinating book. It, it's so much, not surprisingly, quite a bit about writing and writers. And, and to me, what I found most interesting is that it's about states of consciousness, I think. The, 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 the dreaming, uh, the fictional dream that, that we all experience when we're reading and the, how that blurs between uh, our lives. Oh, I think that's a fascinating point. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but, but you're right. It's, it's, I, what I really I wanted to evoke was that sense of, of being when you're at, at the edge of... Uh, this doesn't sound too cliched, but you know, the edge of reality and dreams, and 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 I wanted it to be a, I wanted to be a very realistic world, and yet to have there be um, infiltrations of a, of a fantasy world or of a of a dream world. Really, I wouldn't say maybe necessarily say fantasy, but a kind of dream consciousness too. And I think for me that that's something that it's a kind of way that you know people 
it's not it's not only about when people fall asleep and, and or fantasize or have dreams, but it's also when I think people are intimate with each other, or when people are passionate about something they're reading or doing, or when people are trying to really you know communicate with one another in a very deep way. You your sense of the world shifts in in certain imperceptible ways, and and I was trying to capture that kind of shifting uh, shifting sense there. The stories we tell ourselves about our lives and the stories we tell others about our lives, and we know the difference between those two stories. Yes, well, and, you yes, you put it much better. <laughs> that's that's true. That's that's a good way to put it. Well, there's two stories in this book, and they're both very interesting. And from a a perspective of a first novel, that are just absolutely fascinating. The first story that we encounter is Eugene. He's just escaped from college, and he's kind of drifting and and. But he makes an interesting choice to tell his father one thing, and yet he does something rather different, doesn't he? Yeah, well, he, he's graduated from school, and he's from New York, and he's feeling uh, he has this real need for escape, as he says he put it, and for adventure, but he's, he's a bit too timid to do anything about it. So his, his small rebellion is to move from his apartment in his parents, his father's house in, in Manhattan, move to the far at northern edge of Manhattan is as far as he can go, right at, at the border of the city for him. And he takes a job at a moving company and he basically loses touch with his friends and his father in, in an effort to create a new world for himself that's totally uh, different from what he knew. And he makes an effort to put himself outside of his comfort zone and, and he does and then strange things start to happen to him. The first strange thing that happens to him is he meets a man named Alvaro who speaks an incomprehensible dialect. There's just so many layers of language in this book and translation and perception of language. I was fascinated by just the Chibeno actually does exist. As I'm reading this book, I'm thinking, how much of this exists? So (laughs) it's one of those books where I kept looking stuff up to see what was real and what wasn't. Yeah, there there is a dialect called Sabeño, and it's in, spoken in, in a remote part of the Dominican Republic, but it's not nearly as uh, unintelligible as it is in, in, in my books. I took some liberties. Uh, the relationship with Alvaro and Eugene, which which is what starts the book, is, is very important for me from the beginning, and it, it felt like it really established a lot of the main themes and ideas that the book was about and the, and the characters. And... That's one of the very few elements that I can trace to some kind of autobiographical moment in my own life where I was living in Italy one summer and I was working as an intern at a publishing company during college and I had no place to live. And the first day I met a young man who we seemed to have the same similar interest in in fiction and and he was an editor there, a young editor there. And I explained my housing situation. He offered uh, his place for me to stay in. And so I didn't really know what that meant, but I, I took him up on it, and I, I, I moved in, and he turned out to be totally innocent, just a really nice, generous guy, and I lived on a, I slept on a fold-out chair, and he and I, he was trying to learn English, and I, that was really what he wanted me there for, he wanted to learn English, and I was trying to improve my Italian. So we would speak in a very, he would speak a very bad English and refuse to speak in Italian, and I would mostly refuse to speak in English or I would match his English with my own bad English so that he could understand it, and or try to speak in my pidgin Italian. So neither of us were really making any sense at all, but we we had such a great time together, and we laughed, and we always were making jokes, but 
probably to a third party, it would be like two people speaking gibberish. So that that was the seed of the idea for the relationship between Eugene and Alvaro, where they're speaking totally different and incomprehensible languages from each other, but somehow they feel that they're communicating on a deeper level and understanding each other. And whether they are or not is, you know, is, is left to, uh, to suspect. We've been speaking with Nathaniel Rich. His new novel is The Mayor's Tongue. Thank you for joining me, Nathaniel. Thank you very much for having me here. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom slash agony.